Open your Bibles to Malachi 2, if you would. Malachi chapter 2, we're working our way through this uh, little book that is full of challenging truth. Did you notice in the news this last week that they had a little uh, security alert at the White House? It appears that the security measures work because they saw these airplanes coming from some distance. The president and the vice president went into the bunker. All the Secret Service came out with uh, guns that you usually only see in movies. And uh, it didn't take them too long, though, to figure out it was a uh, false alarm. The, somebody read the radar wrong or the planes, they knew who they were. Whatever it was, there was a, it was a false alarm. But I guess you'd say it was a good test of the security system. They take the president's security very seriously. And, well, they should, whether it's a president that we approve of or one that we don't approve of at some times, because we want to protect the institution of the presidency. We don't want anybody to think that they can change the power in our country at the end of a gun barrel. And so we take the security very seriously. As we come to Malachi 2, we are going to be challenged very, very strongly by God to take the security and stability of our families very seriously. And might I say that I think the stability of our families could even be more important than the President of the United States. And if we take his security seriously, we ought to take our families even more seriously follow as I read from Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you And the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did God not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I'd like to call this passage the spiritual truth about divorce. Or you could call it God's perspective on divorce. Last week... God talked about their marriage problem, which was believers marrying unbelievers. And he says, that is wrong, it's a sin, and it should not happen. Today, he says, now here's a second thing, here's a second problem I want to address, and this is the problem of sinful divorce. There is such a thing as righteous divorce. God does make two exceptions for divorce, which allows those divorces to be righteous. And one of those issues is adultery, and the other is a believer who is deserted or divorced by an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. The believer is not under bondage in such cases. 
Now, we're going to talk about those things at length tonight. But having said that, there are those two, two exceptions. What I want to say this morning, what God wants us to hear this morning is, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Is that fuzzy? Is that unclear? Is that hard to interpret? I'm being a little facetious, but I'm a little angry. Because you can't believe how many, time, how many ways people try to twist the Scripture and make it say that their divorce is going to be okay, even though it doesn't match with those two exception clauses. God hates divorce. Why does He hate divorce so much? God hates divorce because it is an act of spiritual violence. This passage is organized the same way the previous three verses were, and that's this. He actually nails the problem at the end of the passage, and all of the supporting reasons are before it. So we want to go to verse 16, first of all, where he says, He hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence. It is an act of spiritual violence. I bet you haven't ever heard anybody say that about divorce. It's an act of spiritual violence. Most people would like to say they're not violent people. I'm not a violent person. It's an act of spiritual violence. Why is that? Well, if we go back to Genesis 2, we, we read about the establishment of marriage. And of course, one of the unique things about Genesis 2 is there were only two human beings on the planet. See, who are you going to marry? Hey, how about her? At least Adam was smart enough not to marry one of the animals. He, he looked all around and it, and it said God brought all the animals and, and Adam named all the animals and God looked and Adam looked around and, and there was not a helper that was compatible or suitable. The King James word is meat. There was not a helper for Adam. And so the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper that is comparable to him or suitable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and put it in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." This is the funny part about Genesis because Adam and Eve didn't have a mom and dad to leave. But, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus tells us that Moses wrote the law. And obviously Moses was not there to record this as it happened. And so after the fact, God gave him these events and God gave him the commentary. You see, we have the history or the events, the news, and then we have the commentary. Therefore... Therefore, therefore what? Because God took Eve out of, literally physically out of the flesh of Adam. He said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was taken out man, therefore she shall be called woman. Adam looked at her and recognized she was a human being. That's part of what he's saying. There's not, not an animal here. This one corresponds to me. But God's commentary is because of it was actually his physical bone. They were, they were physically united in a way that no other man and woman are quite the same. 
And it says, because of that, they shall leave their father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. When you get married, one plus one equals one. The concept of marriage is two people that live in the same house and they, they share the house and they share the bed. They have two separate cars. You know, she's got a minivan and he's got a pickup truck. <laughs> May it ever be. Yeah, amen means let it so be. Yes, yes. When she gets new carpet, he gets a radial arm saw. You know. Uh, and it's viewed as a partnership. Which sounds like a really great word, but it's not God's word. Look at Malachi there. He says here, uh, uh, verse 14. Look at verse 14. Between you and the wife of your youth, uh, whom you have dealt treacherously, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The word covenant is a legally binding agreement. It's actually the word, if you look on your Bible, and uh, or you look inside your Bible, and it will say the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments. The word testament is the same as the word covenant. It means a legally binding agreement. Did you know that God has made a legally binding agreement with you, or a binding agreement? He said, if you will believe in Jesus as your Savior, I will save you. It is not a hope so, it's not a maybe, it's not a sort of, it is a binding agreement. He made a binding agreement with a number of people in the Old Testament. God says when you come together in a church or in your backyard or wherever it is, and you make promises before God, it is a covenant. And he says God witnesses the covenant. Did you notice that in Malachi 3 as we came through? He says, I am witnessing between you and your wife. Between you and your husband. And when you accept, when you accept one another, when you make these promises, you become one flesh. And so, to divorce is to rip apart a single entity. It's not two people going their separate ways. It's one person being torn in two. And that's why it's an act of spiritual violence. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 19. He was questioned about divorce. The Pharisees came. We'll look at this passage in detail tonight. The Pharisees came and said, Can we get divorced for just any reason? That's literally what they said. Because that, that, the, that was what they were currently doing. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And, and he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. I love to say that line. I get to say it. I've said it a lot of times. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, when you... Say I do, or, or however those vows are worded, and you make those promises, God brings you together. God joins you together. You are one new person before God, one new spiritual entity. And so God hates divorce because it is an act of spiritual violence, it is the tearing apart of this one new spiritual entity. God doesn't say you are now a new group, you are now partners, you are now best friends. He doesn't even say you're a family. He says you are one 
flesh. Do you know in Matthew 19, when Jesus, that's the passage where he says, except for the cause of adultery, or actually uses the word pornea, which means all kinds of sexual immorality. He says, except for that cause, you cannot get divorced. Do you know what the disciples said? They said, Jesus, if this is the case with a man and his woman, it is better not to get married. They looked at how tightly he drew the circle of divorce, and he said, if you can't get divorced, you're better off not getting married. Because they knew how hard it is for people to get along because they'd been there. Do you know what? Maybe that is part of the mentality we need, starting here at Malachi chapter 3. To tear apart this one entity is an act of spiritual violence. Therefore, don't enter into marriage lightly. Well, I guess we'll get married. I've done a lot of weddings for unbelievers over the years. And many times I have felt sad at their weddings. You know why? Because it seems like just something they're doing on Tuesday or Wednesday or Saturday or whatever day it is. You know, I went to work yesterday, I'm getting married today, and tomorrow I'm going back to work. I think, oh, you know, you, you really have not grasped this. It is an act of spiritual violence to tear apart the new spiritual person, the new spiritual entity that God creates. Secondly, God hates divorce because it threatens his intention of godly offspring. This is an odd argument, and every commentator that I read said this is the hardest verse in the book to interpret. In fact, they said it's one of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret. I'm going to give you my best take on it. And I think part of it is clear and part of it's a little fuzzy. Look at, look at verse 15. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. The best understanding I can, I can grasp from studying this verse this week is this. In some fashion, God understands that the way that godly offspring will be raised up from a family depends on the marriage being righteous. Did He not make them one? Somehow, God, in God's understanding, the oneness that He creates contributes to the, the possibility of the children growing up righteous. There is probably a reference here to Adam and Eve. God made Adam and Eve one in part because He wanted godly offspring for them. The person of Jesus being the ultimate godly offspring who came from Adam and Eve. I'm going to quote from a commentator, a James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, The basis of all that Malachi says in verse 15 is that God has created marriage, that it was His idea. You know, that's an important point to stop right there, isn't it? Do people around us in the world today talk about marriage, treat marriage as though it is created by God and they should not mess with it? Or do they consider it to be a human institution of which they can change any way they like? What about us? Do we see marriage as a divine creation or something we have done? The basis of all that Malachi says is that God has created marriage. It was His idea. It was God, not man, who made the race male and female. It was God who looked at the man in his singleness and judged. 
It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It was God who brought the first woman to the first man, as it were, performed the first marriage ceremony. It was God who said, be fruitful and increase in number. It is to this original creation of man and woman and of God uniting them in one permanent marriage that Malachi refers when he says, Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking a godly offspring. That is, godliness is linked to marriage faithfulness. Now, I am well aware as I preach this sermon this morning that I am running the risk of some or many of you getting a misunderstanding of something. And I want to say now, maybe I'll say it again if I remember. If you get a burr under your saddle this morning, will you please come and talk to me about it? Because probably what it means is God is really poking you in a particular area. And maybe there's a misunderstanding of, of the Scripture Maybe there's something that needs to change in your life. But I just want to say, listen to God and let's work through this together. I realize there are many people who have been divorced here. I understand that. I was not a pastor, but I was a youth pastor. So every Wednesday night, I had to talk to those kids. And I used to slave away all day Wednesday trying to figure out what in the world I'm going to teach them. For some reason, I thought I was going to do a little series on marriage and divorce. I got up to teach on divorce, and I looked out there, and I went, divorced parents, divorced parents, divorced parents, divorced parents, divorced parents. I went, oh, this is going to be personal. Never had, never had that thought in my life. <laughs> so I know this is personal today. I know that. And believe me, it's not directed at any particular person. But I want you to get God's perspective. And what he says there is somehow marital faithfulness and permanence contributes to godly children. Now, why is that? Because the kind of divorce God is talking about is sinful divorce. And if you sinfully divorce, I'm not being silly here, it's a sin, and that means you are now not living for God. And so what's your parenting going to be like? It's going to be based out of the hurt you're going through and the anger you're going through. And it's going to be based out of your own selfish needs because that's why you divorced to begin with. And all of that sin is going to impact your children. And do you think they're going to get more righteous? Somehow what he's trying to get us to understand is a sinful divorce is going to hurt your family. And I know that's, that's kind of a simplistic statement. And I, but I don't think we take it seriously. I don't know how many times I hear people say, well, it's all about the kids. I'm doing this for the kids. Whatever. I mean, not just divorce, but all kinds of things. And I just want to say, baloney. You're doing this for yourself. Quit kidding yourself. Divorce threatens God's intention of godly offspring. offspring. Number three, divorce is, God hates divorce because it is an act of treachery against your spouse. This is a strong word. Look again uh, at verse, uh, um, verse 14. God is a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. 
Verse 15, let none deal treacherously. Verse 16, do not deal treacherously. When God repeats something in every verse three times in a row, you, you know that's important. What does treachery mean? I think probably our, our, our most common current word would be uh, treason. Uh, I, I ripped this out of the paper this week. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. A military jury sentenced a soldier to death Thursday for a grenade and rifle attack on his own comrades during the opening days of the Iraq invasion. A barrage that killed two officers and that prosecutors said was driven by religious extremism. Sergeant Hassan Akbar, who gave a brief, barely audible apology hours earlier, stood at attention as the verdict was delivered. That's treachery. When you go to barracks with your fellow soldiers with whom you are risking life and limb, and you set off a grenade and you shoot some people, that's treachery. War is not treachery because the battle lines are drawn and we know where they are. When you come in against your brothers, that's treachery. And when you sinfully act against your husband or your wife to divorce, that is treachery. That's how God sees it. It is an act of treachery. Look at verse 13. This is what he's talking about in verse 13 when he says, this is the second thing you do. And perhaps we would understand that God puts this up front in the passage because it's making God so angry. He says, what you're doing is you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. And let me add a word. So the result is he will not regard the offering anymore, nor will he receive the gift from your hand. And he said, why are you seeing our offerings? It's the party being treacherously acted upon by the other party. He addresses men and women here in this role because in that day, women did not rise up and divorce their husbands. They just couldn't. It just wasn't possible. And so the, the thing that was going on was men divorcing their wives. And I, I don't have the statistics to prove it, but I think if we looked at sinful divorce in the kind that he's talking about, it's still going on by men today against the wife of their youth. We, uh, we, we joke sometimes and talk about, we, we see a couple together and we go, oh, there's a trophy bride, you know, she's 20, she's 40 or whatever. The, the part that's not funny is the part where he divorced a woman, sent her packing, the wife of his youth, the companion by covenant. And those women were coming to the temple and unloading themselves to God in tears. The things that come to my mind is the same thing that happened with Hannah. Remember Hannah, the mother of Samuel? She came to the she came every year to worship and she was barren and she came and prayed and said, "Oh God, give me a child." And she was so uh, burdened about it that she wept and cried and carried on, on on the steps of the temple. And and that appears to be what's going on here. And, and, and so the image that, that I see from these verses is something like this. Here comes a man to offer his sacrifice. Probably got his new wife on his arm. And he comes in and offers his sacrifice and God looks down and he goes, I don't want that. Because what does God see on the altar? Does he see the blood of the animal on the altar? No. He sees the tears of that man's ex-wife. He says, I don't want that. You're a sinner. You're offering a sinful... You are in sin trying to worship me. 
We looked at that last week at the idea that you cannot compensate for sin. You can only confess it and repent and ask for God's forgiveness. You can't, you can't make up for sin with worship. And so God said, this is an act of treachery against your spouse. It is so bad that I will reject your worship. God saw these ex-wives crying because of their divorce, from their unjust divorce. So God hates divorce because it's an act of treachery against your spouse. Number four, God hates divorce because it creates distance between himself and his children. I just spoke about that. He said, I don't want your worship. Now, is this a permanent space? Is divorce an unforgivable sin? No, it is not. There's no sin that's unforgivable. Uh, some people would say the unforgivable sin is not believing in Jesus before you die. And uh, I, I would certainly agree with that. But there is no sin um, outside of that that God cannot forgive if you come to Him and confess your sin. The only time God would refuse worship here would be because of a sin that has not been taken care of. Do we expect God to cover His eyes when we sin? You know, like Sergeant Schultz and the old Hogan's Heroes, I see nothing, I hear nothing, I'm blissfully ignorant, you know, I know there's bad things going on, but I'm going to close my eyes and I'll pretend it didn't happen. Do you think God's going to do that? He can't. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. He can't help but see the sin that goes on. Here's, here's the real irony. Now, we're talking to Christians here today. Unbeliever, you're in a different category. I understand that. Uh, you're still one flesh and you're still torn apart. But right now, especially we're talking to Christians, when we talk about the distance between God and His children, many people... Most people, I haven't talked to everyone, think that the divorce is going to make their life better or worse. Oh, they think it's going to be better. Oh, I'm going to be free. I'm going to feel good. Hey, Christian, if you divorce sinfully, you are walking yourself right into separation from God. Not eternal separation. He's not going to kick you out as his child. But you're going to walk from walking with him to walking apart from him. Does that usually make your life better or worse? The wages of sin is... And that's not just in eternity, folks. I like to put it this way. You can have a death quality of life. So Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Well, what's the opposite of that? Not abundantly and not having life. You can be living... When, you, when a Christian lives away from God, he is uncomfortable. He's guilty. He, she, she knows what's going on. She knows in her heart something's not right. He knows. He's separated from God. He knows what the sin is. Does that make you feel good? You're all, a lot of you, most of you are Christians. You know what it's like to be living in sin. Do you feel good? No, you feel lousy. And then that makes you want to do other things. It makes you want to stay away from the Bible. It makes you want to stay away from church. You sure don't want to come here and hear Pastor Dave wail away on you. And does that make your life go better and better and better? 
because you're not reading the Word, and you're not praying, and you're not going to church, you're not hanging out with God's people. They're all rebuking you, going, you shouldn't be doing that. And so your life gets worse and worse and worse. And you thought you were going to choose divorce and your life was going to get better. Friend, if you are a true child of God and you make a sinful choice, any sinful choice, you create separation, space between you and God, and it will not make your life better. Number five, God hates divorce because it can be avoided. Now, again, I understand there are times when other people walk away and you can't stop them. I know that. And we're going to talk about those more at length tonight. In fact, tonight, Pastor Larry is going to share an example of a time when a pastor said to a person, somebody far away from here, pastor said to that person, if you don't divorce your husband, it'll be a sin. And he was right. And so, yeah, there are some times. And there, there, there might be, need to be some times when, when, when uh, you know, Pastor Larry and I and the deacon sit with you and say, yes, we stand with you in this divorce. But there might be some times when we need to say, we will stand with you out in marriage. Because divorce can be avoided. Look what God says. Um, verse 15. He seeks godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit. Verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you're following the notes, you see that I've put the phrase, guard your heart. Guard your heart. You can talk about your heart. You can talk about your spirit, your inner person, you. That person down in there that, that uh, either pulls you to do the right or pulls you to do the wrong. The person that you do battle with when you're trying to live righteously and not sinfully. He says, guard your heart. Take heed to your spirit. Why does he say that? He says that because, as Jesus so eloquently puts it, he said, from your heart, that's where sins come out of your life. They all start there. The way you think and believe will allow you to sin or live righteously. If you don't take Malachi 3 to heart, when God says, I hate divorce, and somehow you create a doctrinal perspective in your mind that says, well, I know divorce is bad, but it's really not that bad, and you have all these other thoughts, those beliefs will push you and allow you to get divorced, even though it's sinful. But if you have God's beliefs, God's thoughts in your mind and in your heart, it will help you to stay and see God glorified. What are the things that you need to guard your heart from? First of all, you need to guard your heart from idolatry. And I want to share this with the unmarried. If getting married is your top priority, and sometimes these idols can very subtly slip in from other things and take the place of bringing glory to God, if that is your top priority in life, you will compromise godly values and you will end up in a hard marriage. And I don't have any problem saying that it will happen. <laughs> okay, I'll go right out there and, and you can write it down and in 10 years you can come back and tell me I was wrong and I'll be glad to hear it. But there will be a thousand times where I could tell you I was right. 
If you compromise godly values to get married because you're so anxious to be married, you will reap what you sow, which is hardship. Doesn't mean you'll automatically get divorced. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that will bring hardship. Guard your heart from idolatry. Number two, guard your heart from foolishness. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but if you think any human being is going to meet all the desires of your heart, you have believed the wisdom of the world. God never says your husband is responsible to meet all your needs. He doesn't say that. God never says your wife is responsible to meet all your needs. He says, husbands, you are responsible to lay down your life in love as Christ laid down his life for the church, which means you are to put your wife first and love her. Does that mean she will think you have met all of her needs? Maybe yes, maybe no. Because maybe her thinking is wrong. And husband, do you expect certain things from your wife? And when you don't get them, you say, you're not meeting my needs. Hey, that's, that's not your business in marriage. If you foolishly think this person's not meeting my needs, I'm going to find somebody who will meet all of my needs. Well, then you're a fool twice. I mean, you, you, that's crazy talk, as they say. Okay? It's just not going to happen. Who's the person that's going to meet the deep needs of your heart? What? God is. That's right. That's right. And if God's not meeting the deep needs of your heart now, it, they won't get met in marriage. But if He is meeting them now, when you add that marriage partner, it's a bonus. Get your priorities right. Don't be foolish. Number three, guard your heart from complacency. Complacency is taking your spouse for granted. During courtship, a man and a woman generally will look sharp and act kind and do their best to woo or be wooed. But once the ring is on the finger, it can be a different story. And it's not, not of an evil intention. It's like, well, you know, that's what you do when you're courting somebody and once you get married, you don't have to do that anymore. Okay? And, and one of the bottom line problems is taking your spouse for granted. Do you deserve to be married to such a person? Do you deserve whatever they do for you? No, you don't. Not any more than anybody else does. Maybe less. Don't take them for granted. Uh, when Mother's Day comes, you need to, to do something. When their birthday comes, you need to do something. When Friday night comes, you need to do something. You need to take your spouse Importantly, at least they need to be important to you. Strong marriages are built like strong muscles by purposeful, consistent exercise. If, if, if you never move your arm and you just leave it hang there, pretty soon there won't be any strength to it at all, will there? The muscles atrophy. That's what happens when people are sick in a hospital for a long time. If they don't move and have therapy and whatnot, their muscles just, just literally go to mush. How do you think your marriage is going to be strong in 25 or 30 years if you don't give effort and time to it now? Guard your heart from complacency. I, I'm going to use a word that may get me into trouble, but I'll use it anyway. I think your marriage ought to be your number one hobby. Now, I use that because guys can understand it. And guys need it more than women most of the time. You know, what you know what a hobby is for a guy? It's something he spends time and money and effort and heart on. Great. Not a problem. 
Just make sure your wife is your number one, not two or three after golf and the car and whatever else. You need to really emphasize your marriage. Number four, guard your heart from... If that ain't Jesus, don't answer it. (laughs) And I got a good impression that it ain't him. Guard your heart from self-centeredness. Complacency is being being lazy. And self-centeredness is something we put a lot of effort into, but it's the wrong effort. You are not the most important person in your marriage. You are not the most important person in your marriage. If I was to really be theological, I'd say God is the most important person. And when the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh, God said to him, Look, I'm not going to deliver you from it. I'm going to let you struggle along so that you will cling to me and my glory will be shown by your strength in the midst of weakness. Might God want to do that in your marriage? He might. And that will be tough. We will hold your hand. We will put our arm around your shoulder and we'll help you do that. God is the most important person in your marriage. Guard your heart from self-centeredness. Guard your heart from bitterness. Bitterness is when you do not forgive, but you harbor the wrong done and you meditate on it. Oh man, I, I, I knew a fellow once. He was, he was into his 50s. And every time we had coffee, he was a Christian. Every time we had coffee, he rehearsed the same stories of hurt from years ago. They were professional stories, the things that people had done to him here and there. And you know what his face looked like? I'm not making this up. This is what his mouth looked like all the time. Uh, his, 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 it didn't turn up like this. It turned down. He was bitter. Do you know, if you meditate on the wrongs, the hurts, the, the inconsistency of your spouse, you'll get bitter and you'll build up a case for divorce. And you know what? You might be right. You might be married to a real bum. You might be married to a real self-centered witch. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, not you. It's usually not as bad as we think it is, and usually part of the reason it's not that bad is because we've been hanging on to the hurts. And that is not what a loving person does. 1 Corinthians 13, love lets go of these things. Guard your heart from bitterness. Nobody's perfect. Not your husband or wife. Not my wife. Not her husband. Nobody's perfect. But if you meditate on the wrongs, you'll be bitter and it'll encourage you to divorce. Number three, guard, number, number F, guard your heart from indulgence. Your flesh wants certain things. Your flesh wants comfort. Your flesh wants to feel good. Some of you are sitting in those pews thinking, well, they're going to get some better chairs, man. These things aren't comfortable. How come they get to sit on those good chairs and I got to sit on this little hard thing over here? All you're thinking about is your flesh. And sometimes we do that in marriage. Oh, you know, my spouse isn't quite as good looking as they used to. Look at those new models they got out there. I got news for you. You will never be married to the best-looking person on the planet. Because you're kind of ugly. No. 
Because there will always be somebody better looking. There will always be somebody better looking. And some of them will be where you work. And some of them will be where you go to exercise. And some of them will be at their grocery store and you name it. And if you allow your flesh to be indulged in thinking about things like physical beauty or perhaps some character trait. Well, my husband's this way and that way. Now this guy, he's really considerate or whatever. Hey, he might be really considerate, but he ain't perfect either. And if you meditate on, and if you say, I want that, I need that, I crave that, I'm going to get that. You're indulging your flesh. Don't indulge your flesh. You've got to say no. It's the same, it's not just toward marriage, it's toward everything. It's all kinds of things that our flesh craves and we've got to say no. Guard your heart from indulgence. Whoa. Whoa. Guard your heart from covetousness kind of similar to what I said about indulgence. Every husband or wife has strengths and weaknesses. Really easy to look at somebody else's strengths compared to your spouse's weaknesses and think, I want that. That's what covetousness is. Jealousy is when uh, you want something all for yourself. Covetousness is when you want to get something you don't have. Somebody else has a better one than you have. Guard your heart from covetousness. Cut it off. Thanks. I want to read a story to you that I uh, read in a journal this week. Yeah. Jack and Betty, this is written by a pastor. Jack and Betty sold their house on the hill several years before I arrived as their new pastor. It was the house where they had raised three children and they'd collected more than 30 years of cherished memories. It was their home. They were now living in a two-bedroom apartment in another part of town. It appeared to me that Jack was always bothered by something. Betty seemed delightful but a bit spacey. Often as they were leaving church, she would say something odd. But her countenance was so bright that I just smiled and enjoyed her joy. They were always together, one scout, another oblivious, but always together. When I arrived, uh, one day they stopped to uh, a door after worship and invited me to their place for dinner. When I arrived at their apartment, it didn't take me long to realize that Betty had Alzheimer's. It now seems so obvious that I felt foolish for missing it earlier. Jack never let her out of his sight. It was then I realized that he had not been scowling the last couple of years. He was just worried. Before I had my coat off, Betty took me by the hand and led me to the painting over the sofa that depicted their stately old home. She became more lucid as the stories of the old place tumbled out of her soul. I felt her squeeze my hand as she talked and giving me a clue to her subtext. Quote, I was not always like you see me now, unquote. Jack stood behind us and allowed his worry to ease with a bit of a gentle smile. We made our way down the hallway where so many memories of better days were hanging on the wall. As she walked up and down the hall day after day, the old photos whispered to Betty, please don't forget. Dinner was interesting. Betty couldn't be allowed near the stove and Jack wasn't about to learn to cook. So he asked their housekeeper to make them an extra large omelet before she left. 
After I arrived, Jack put it in the microwave, then cut it into thirds and served it on Betty's best china. For dessert, he brought out Klondike bars. We ate them using the good silverware, which isn't easy. Several times during the meal, Betty got up and wandered the apartment a bit. I was impressed by Jack's ability to maintain our conversation, which was always of secondary importance to him. When she returned from wandering, Betty stood behind Jack's chair and put her trembling hand on his shoulder. As only old lovers can, he reached up to take her hand as if it were the first and the millionth time he had done it. I stopped talking as they both smiled at me. Well, there it was. A witness to the presence of Christ. Beneath that gentle act of holding a trembling hand lies the mystery of a real marriage that binds two together as tightly as Christ is bound to his beloved church. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. In the end, this is as good as love can be. There is, e there is neither glib sentimentality nor despair. There is just the holding of hands and perhaps the smile of God. I want to challenge you to aspire to that. As you enter marriage, as you stay married, as you say no to whatever you must say no to, including yourself. Father, we confess that there are many times when we don't keep a close rein on our hearts. We see all kinds of things that look attractive. The grass is always greener. Even those of us who never divorce, at least we say that. And yet we look with a longing eye at many times. Oh, Father, help us to guard our hearts. Father, surely you know everybody's heart here and you know who is really struggling in their marriage today and I do not. Encourage them today. Give them steel in their spine to do what is right today. Father, as hard as it is for us as a church, help us to hold your standard high. We need to rebuke and help us to encourage when we ought to encourage. Help us to know what is right and to encourage our brothers and sisters to walk in that way. God, you know the hearts. You know the struggles. Give, give strength. Make yourself known as we can. Father, may we all be more committed to doing what is right, to loving our partner more like Christ loves the church. Thank you for your word. May it continue to speak to us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.